First gospel lesson this morning is the story of the birth of John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1, the very first story in the gospel of Luke. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was named Elizabeth, and both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to the commandments of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once when Zechariah was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary to offer incense to the Lord. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside and there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, My name is Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak this good news to you. But now, because you didn't believe my words, you will be unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. And when he did come out, he couldn't speak to them. And they realized that he'd been seen a, a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she bore a baby son. And the story continues in Luke chapter 1. They were going to name the baby Zechariah after his father, but his mother said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives has this name. They began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for God has looked favorably on God's people and redeemed them. God has raised a mighty Savior for us in the house of God's servant David as the prophets promised from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Thus God has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and remembered the holy covenant. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare God's ways, to give knowledge and salvation to God's people. By the tender mercy of our God, The dawn from on high shall break upon us to give light to those who dwell in deep darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before Luke tells us about the birth of our Lord, he tells us about the birth of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and campaign manager. 
John the Baptist is the son of an old priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And Luke tells us three important things about Zechariah and Elizabeth. He tells us first that they were devout Jews. Blameless is the word he uses to describe them. He tells us that they were childless. And he tells us that they were old. Luke doesn't tell us how old. But in my mind's eye, I see a couple in their 60s, maybe approaching retirement. Perhaps they've explored a couple of retirement communities on the shore of the Dead Sea, which was the Florida of ancient Palestine. The salient point, of course, is that Elizabeth had her hot flashes long ago. And so Zechariah works in the temple in Jerusalem, and one day when he's minding his own priestly business in the sanctuary, he's interrupted by the angel Gabriel, who tells Zechariah that his 60-something wife is already pregnant with their son. Zechariah, who knows how these things work, says, no way. And Gabriel says, way, or something like that. And Zechariah says, prove it. And this ticks Gabriel off. He's not used to being doubted. And so he says, okay, I will prove it. Because you've doubted these words, these incredulous words will be the last words you speak until you see these things come true. And so for nine months, Zachariah doesn't say a word. Terrible thing for a clergyman. The baby is born and it's time to give the baby a name. Zechariah has a little pad and pencil hanging from a string around his neck. And he takes it and he writes on the pad, his name is John. And just then, his tongue is freed and he starts out with a pent-up eloquence that is so beautiful. He sings this beautiful song called the Benedictus after the first word in the song in Latin, blessed. Blessed be the Lord God of our people Israel, for God has looked favorably on God's people and redeemed them. God has raised up a mighty Savior for them in the house of David so that we will be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. And the dawn from on high shall break upon us to give light to those who sit in deep darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And once again, when we hear this song about John and Jesus, we hear that light motif, pun intended, that light motif coming back when we ever, whenever we hear about Jesus. He is the light of the world. He is the dawn from on high that will break upon a lost people sitting around in a darkness so thick that you can reach out and touch it. And so light proves to be over and over again an irresistible and irrepressible metaphor for what Jesus means to so many people. After this story of Benedictus in Luke's Gospel, Luke will tell us that there were shepherds watching over their flocks by night and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. In Matthew, he will tell us that a bright, new, brilliant, lucent star will guide the Magi across hundreds of miles of desert waste to the cradle of the baby king. And John calls Jesus the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And, of course, it's so easy to see why light is this irresistible metaphor for the evangelists. It's a staple of human existence, correct? Without light, we can't see. Without light, we'd be lost. Without the light of the world, the world can never make sense. Without light, we would freeze, right? 
without the exactly perfect amount of light on this Goldilocks planet, we could never survive. Not too hot, not too cold. Without light, we would freeze. Without light, we would starve because the grain that sustains our metabolisms is nothing but synthesized starlight, right? And the soil in which it grows is nothing but stardust from ancient dead suns. And so without light, we would be lost. Without light, we would be cold. Without light, we would be hungry. And this autumn, I discovered a fourth thing about light that makes it an irresistible metaphor for what Jesus means to us. Now, Matthew, Luke, and John couldn't have known this 2,000 years before Einstein, but light is the one fixed and stable constant in the universe. It's all relative to the light. So all autumn, the media has been reminding us that the last month, November 25, was the 100th anniversary of Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. Ten years before that, of course, the theory of special relativity, together probably the most revolutionary discoveries ever in human science. And so for that reason, the United Nations has named 2015 as the International Year of Light. And so I've used this epochal anniversary as an excuse to revisit the math and physics I stumbled over in high school and aggressively avoided in college. I'm not very good at it, but I'm awed by it. And after all, who does understand Albert Einstein, right? When the theory of general relativity was pretty new, someone asked the great Cambridge astronomer Arthur Eddington, Dr. Eddington, I hear there are only three scientists in the world who actually understand general relativity and that you're one of them. Dr. Eddington said nothing. Dr. Eddington was a Quaker. He was legendary for his humility and shyness. And his interrogator said, Dr. Eddington, don't be so modest. And Dr. Eddington says, on the contrary, I'm just trying to think who the third one is. <laughs> and all that's very true, of course, but, but in actual reality, the special theory of relativity is pretty simple, right? You can say it in one sentence. The laws of physics are the same whether you are in motion or at rest. That's all there is to it. The implications, however, are staggering. Because what it means is that no matter how fast you are traveling relative to a beam of light, the beam of light always travels at 186,000 miles a second. If you're running alongside this beam of light at 90% of the speed of light, or if you're running away from the beam of light at the same speed, the light still always travels at 186,000 miles a second, which means that space and time aren't what we thought they were, right? There was a time when we thought a mile was a mile was a mile, and a minute was a minute was a minute, but it's not true. The shortest distance between two points is not a straight line because space is curved. And you and I, if we're traveling at different speeds, have different clocks. The faster you move, the slower your clock is. So there was a time when we thought space and time were fixed and constant. That they were straight and rigid. 
But for the last almost exactly 100 years, we've had to alter our conception about what is fixed and what is flexed. The only stable constant in the universe is the speed of light. One scientist says there is but one absolute, one absolute of unique significance, one truth that is independent of all frames of reference. So it's my job to turn material truths into spiritual truths. So here's my theory of relative relativity for Christmas. It's all relative to the light. Or to tip the expression, what is your relationship to the light of the world? Did you think once, like Jesus' contemporaries, that Rome's reign would be eternal? and the temple indestructible? Was there a time when you thought his humble, short, star-crossed life was trivial, but now you somehow understand that it is the very point of human existence? In an interview a while back, the poet Maya Angelou, God rest her soul, was speaking of the confusion and futility of modern life and she said that our malaise comes from the fact that we are anchorless our lives are not fixed to any stable constant we've lost our way she says we have drifted into this never never land where we are up for grabs yes are you up for grabs Does it seem like many Americans are up for grabs these days? Muslim Americans are trading some very important advice these days at their mosques and online. Don't stand at the edge of the subway platform or at the L station. Stand with your back against the wall as far from the tracks as you can get. When you get dressed in the morning, think if these are the kinds of clothes you can run in because you might have to. If someone spits on you or tells you to go back to your country, don't react. After dark, walk in groups. The windows of mosques should have wire screens over them to prevent firebombs. And the doors should have bolts that can be locked from the inside in case the ushers spot an armed assailant. At a prominent Christian college, less than an hour away from here, A political science professor had the audacity to suggest that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. She was suspended for saying that. How many gods does Wheaton College think there are? I thought they were monotheists. And so we need more people who are relative to the light. Not necessarily those who call themselves by his name, but understand how he lived his life. In 1933, Albert and Elsa Einstein fled Berlin just after Adolf Hitler became chancellor in Germany and settled down in Princeton, New Jersey. Albert took a position at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. Five years later, in 1938, in the fall, about the time of Kristallnacht, Back in Germany, Princeton University gave its incoming freshmen a survey. 
And on that survey, there was this question. Who do you think is the greatest living person in the world? Albert Einstein came in second. He was a local celebrity. Everybody knew Albert Einstein. He came in second. Do you know who came in first? Adolf Hitler. One of the first persons the Einsteins befriended when they moved to Princeton in 1933 was a neighbor named Caroline Blackwood. In 1934, Mrs. Blackwood told the Einsteins that the Blackwoods would be shortly off to Palestine to see if they could help form a new homeland for the Jews of Europe who were becoming persona non grata already in 1934. Elsa was surprised. She said, Caroline, I didn't know you were Jewish. And Mrs. Blackwood replied, well, actually, we're Presbyterians. Everybody in Princeton is a Presbyterian. It's the law. (laughs) Elsa asked, then why are you so interested in helping the Jews? And Mrs. Blackwood said, there is this intimate and eternal connection between Christians and Jews. Jesus was a Jew, you know. And Elsa reached out to embrace Caroline. She said, no Christian has ever said that to me before in my life. So it just sounds to me as if Caroline Blackwood lived her life relative to the light of the world. She was not up for grabs. He came down to a manger and went up to a cross. He turned water into wine and common fisherfolk into brave heroes. He made lame beggars walk and blind men see. He embraced the outcast and loved the unlovable and forgave the unforgivable and welcomed every other lost and lonely soul into his beautiful grace. And then at the end, he faced down the harrowing specter of cruel death and never turned aside. Are you up for grabs? Or have you fixed your life to some stable constant that nothing in the world, nothing, not even your own survival, can tempt you to relinquish? So, that's my theory of relativity for Christmas. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.